This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 548 for March 1st, 2017. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld who is sounding a little sick this week because, in fact, I'm a little sick. So I hope you'll bear with us, folks. And the us is me and Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Well, you know. Uh, I'm just recovering from being sick, so I have a lot of empathy for you right now. It's that time of year. Thank you. And likewise, it's uh, nothing Nothing will kill me. Just, uh, you know, that Hang time in of there, year. Pal. I'll, I'll get there. I'll just, I'll just use my very white voice all episode and it'll all be fine. Folks, you know that what would make you feel here, better is, is a new 5K monitor. <laughs> a couple of them, maybe. I'd like to have yeah. two or three or four of them. Yeah, it looks like uh, LG has uh, figured out its problems with its 5K monitor that had the shielding issue that was uh, caused uh, allowed interference from nearby Wi-Fi base stations to kind of mess things up. So... Uh, the problem was exposed, and then they said you could send your monitors back that you purchased, and we'll fix them. Then Apple pulled them from sale, and now apparently they are uh, back on the market. So they've stuck some extra wads of uh, metal shielding around the cords, and everything is great again. Although you think they might have tried that earlier before they put them on the market, but what do I know? I don't do that kind of testing. Not my area of expertise, uh, monitor testing. They seem like really cool monitors, so I'm glad they're for sale again. Yeah, and uh, there should be more. I mean, this is the the funny part is that um, you know Apple used to make monitors; it no longer does. It kind of it didn't contract LG, but it sort of anointed them as the uh, 4K and 5K uh, Thunderbolt 3 and USB-C monitor options of choice because there really ain't anything else out there yet. But there should be more Thunderbolt 3 monitors coming. It's a little bit of that. Um, you know, I wonder if Apple. Can't imagine they gave them incentives per se. I mean, not like it's there's nothing wrong with that, but more like there must have been some arrangement that LG is out ahead of the market, uh, given that Apple was putting their monitors up for sale directly. So, uh, we and they're could, a little matchy matchy, aren't they? Uh, do they look the same? I haven't actually seen them in person. Um, I saw them in person. Yeah, I think they're kind of they've got you know that MacBook sort of aesthetic that they don't look out of place. It does have a LG logo right on the front where you'd normally see an Apple logo. But other than that, I guess the base could have matched a little more. But, yeah, it's coordinated. I don't know. I mean, Apple's selling them, so they can't be annoyed by it. They must like that. But uh, there'll be more Thunderbolt 3 monitors out. But this is always when Apple adopts a new uh, interface format that they expect the industry will follow, like uh, Firewire or USB uh, or even mini display port, things like that. It sometimes takes a while for the ecosystem to, to churn up to have enough uh, customers to make it worthwhile to add that as an interface, uh, especially because DisplayPort will continue to work for the foreseeable future with a, a simple adapter. Um, but if you want 5K performance, you have to use Thunderbolt 3, uh, and that's going to be the gap. There are, you know, uh, some, I don't think there's a ton of 5K monitors, a lot of 4K monitors on the market. I don't think there's a ton of 5K. So ostensibly, the companies that make 5K monitors will have the motivation to expand their market to people looking for them. And, uh, and add Thunderbolt 3 support. But, you know, it involves licensing chips and, uh, and integration and adding interfaces and all that. So I think everyone's probably waiting to see how big that market is. But from what I can tell, this is really Intel's push for the interface of the future. So it's not like there's something going to be um, USB 4 uh, or some other weird connector that everyone agrees with. This is Intel and Apple, which kind of control the future of desktops, even though they don't make – I mean, Intel doesn't make desktops, obviously, but they make controller chips and kind of set things. So – 
We this will has see. Terrible reviews on Apple.com. Of the, of not, the 5K? Yeah, and there's a lot about the crashing, which I think might have been the Wi-Fi issue, but then there's some that are like, oh, the colors are off, the sound is terrible, it's making my Mac Pro kernel panic, um, just all kinds of like reports of bugs and stuff, and I would never think a monitor would be buggy, so... That's uh, not good. We need good. to get one in and test it. Yeah, that's, uh, that, is, uh, that is not so hot, is it? It's got a two and a half star average rating right now. On Apple? With, yeah, on Apple.com. Oh, yeah, because that's the only place. a lot of one and two stars. That is very interesting. Yeah, I, we're hearing early on there were some negative reviews coming out. Before uh, I think we thought might be related to the shielding issue, but that's pretty bad. Um, speaking of repairs, by the way, uh, interesting little tidbit on Macworld.com. Third-party iPhone screen repair doesn't necessarily void your warranty anymore, which is kind of a big change because before you, you had to make a choice where you're going to try to find a less expensive shop and there's you know a million places you can go to that will do screen repair or replacement for iPhones, especially when your device is out of warranty or you're trying to find an alternative to a more expensive option from Apple. And now Apple will apparently let you uh, actually fix your phone elsewhere and then uh, bring it in. It'll still cover it as long as the repair didn't inflict other damage is the deal. So that's part of it. I mean, if you've dropped your phone and broken the screen, I feel like that's almost voided the warranty. Like, not really, but any future problems that you have, like, you could, you know, kind of blame on that. So, so yeah, it makes sense that they, that they would do this because... Um, yeah, like that. I mean, the screen breaking is the most common thing, and then later, if you're, you know, one of your buttons breaks or something like that, that should still be covered. Well, there's also, uh, well, that, yeah, it's tricky because if you have, if you're under regular warranty, it's uh, uh, cheaper. Is it cheaper to go to a third party? Well, it depends. I mean, that's it's the funny part. Seventy nine to ninety nine dollars now, um, depending on what size, and then if, if you don't have. Um, Apple Care Plus, and then if you do, it's twenty nine dollars. Right for the first two instances, I think. Over so two years. it's not like it used to be really expensive because I feel right. like the 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 one time I needed out of warranty service, I think it was like two hundred dollars, and so you could probably do a lot better with just you know a guy on Craigslist. But now it might not be that different. Well, that's that's my question. Is I think you could pay less, but. Yeah, the uh, the thing that used to be is I think Apple used to offer you kind of like a one-time deal where there was, they wouldn't replace the screen. They'd give you a refurb. Then they started repairing the screen, but they were still charging a lot. Now, I mean, they're trying to capture the market. This is a bit of the whole uh, like scalping tickets. They know there's a ton of money being paid out there, and mm-hmm. then they have to deal with the upshot. So it's better to get people into stores, make them happy, charge a more reasonable price. Yeah, maybe you'll Keep, buy another case while you're there. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. They make all their money back. I mean, the margins on accessories are so huge. If they get you in the store, they can make up any difference, even if they're doing the repair at cost. Mm-hmm. Well, so and there's also an issue about, uh, you know, those. Uh, there's a story that came out in Motherboard uh, last year that noted that all the things that say it's illegal to open your device, that, you know, remove the seal and avoid the warranty, those are all illegal. Those are not, are not illegal. Those are all um, have no teeth in them. That there actually is a right of various kinds uh, that's federal that lets you open and inspect and repair goods. So, in fact, there are a lot of things that ostensibly violate warranty that companies attempt to enforce that actually are not technically um, accurate or legitimate. So, if you Apple, I think here may in fact be conforming more closely to what the law actually says. It's just because as a consumer, 
you'd have to litigate if you're denied, you know, yeah. and that's a pain. So um, I don't know if this is a result of anything happening behind the scenes, but there's um, there's definitely issues uh, where if you if you open your product and you don't damage it in the process of repairing it, that it does not fall out of warranty. And this would seem to uh, adhere more closely. And our reporter, Caitlin McGarry, uh, Macworld staff writer, she was writing about this. She noted that uh, there are right to repair uh, laws trying to be passed in various states that would actually make it uh, push for manufacturers to require more um, ease of repairing their own devices. And so Apple may yeah, they'd be, have to sell you parts and stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, I always go to iFixit and other places when, I mean, I don't think I've had a, if I'm under warranty, I go to Apple because it's under warranty. And I just had, I mentioned uh, on the show a few weeks ago, I had my MacBook 12 uh, inch, uh, you know, April 2015 MacBook. I brought it in for warranty repair and they replaced Basically, you know, everything but the display and uh, the motherboard, I think. So they replaced the bottom case, the, the top part of the bottom case, the bottom part of the top case, or the bottom case, um, you know, the battery. Uh, so the screen, the, the keyboard, battery, and case were all replaced. The motherboard with the SSD and the display remained the same, and uh, which was fine because everything was failing. So, but I was under warranty and they, and they did that. But anything else, if I have a failing battery, if I needed to swap out a drive, anything else on my computer, I'd, uh, I always do it myself. Just get parts. It's good. Less yeah. you can repair on your computer these days, but still. But you mean every new generation of Apple product that gets torn down by iFixit, it feels like the repairability scores are just inching down, down, down because, you know, they're gluing everything in and they're soldering the RAM down and they're not using, you know, standard sized SSDs and that's all soldered down and... Um, you basically have to like destroy some of these things to to get them apart. So yeah, uh, I'm, you know, I'm never. I don't think Apple does it maliciously to boost I don't think profits. They do either. They're, they're not selling enough Macs to make it worthwhile to do that relative to the cost of of um, what it's worth. I think it's just they they're developing more efficient manufacturing techniques, and they simply don't care about allowing user upgrades and service. So yeah. because they don't care, they're focusing on. You know, trimming off a buck here and there as opposed to, oh, well, let's put a connector in and that let people switch sure, from 16 yeah. gigs to 32 gigs. Yeah, but back in the day the when thing. they wanted you to be able to, like, get in and, you know, take this out and put in a second hard drive. And, like, it used to be a lot, like, they designed for that. And they designed, like, little trap doors and switches and handles and levers. And, and that's all gone now because, I mean, they're going thin and, yeah, they're trying to, you know, keep everything – Thin and light and, and cheap. So, oh, yeah, I remember glue, one of the Mac Minis. One of the Mac Minis, you just rotated the bottom and it popped, the little black I thing know, popped that was off. So and cool. It stick memory in, you know. If you want to do anything else, you couldn't, but that was the, that was, that was nice. I used to have a, I got a, um, back in the day, I got a, uh, a putty knife that was reserved for cracking open Mac Minis because you had to use a putty knife to like crack the case to pull it out and then you could, you know, get in there and replace all kinds of stuff, but it was really difficult. To get into it without really shredding your Mac Mini. Um, a few more updates. We got a bunch of various stuff to talk about this week, so we're going here and there. But um, uh, if you're a podcast aficionado, and if you're not, how are you listening to this show? <laughs> Maybe you are. Maybe this is the only show you listen to. You really Maybe. know your audience here, Glenn. Yes, if you are. So uh, both Overcast and Castro came out with updates uh, this last week, and I'm going to write a uh, head-to-head roundup as opposed to um, just a like you know here's a review of three different of two different things and I'm also going to bring in uh, the uh, pocket cast which is the other most popular uh, uh, iOS 
podcast That's mine. I like that one. Yeah, so you do podcast. So Overcast, um, they, and the, it's interesting. I've got them all three installed and sucking down the same podcast that I've been switching among them to listen because I never really used Pocket Casts before. And uh, Castro, I switched to in version two because they added an inbox queuing mechanism that I really like for essentially triaging. If you subscribe to a lot of podcasts, as I do, it lets you triage what you're going to listen to. Overcast, I liked uh, and used for, through version – well, until I got ca- Castro – uh, because it has, um, I'd say it has better controls for sort of sorting out what's important to you, creating playlists, and it's smart. It's like a smart skip thing where it uh, miss, it uh, uh, skips over silent parts. So if people pause like that, <laughs> <laughs> you don't even know I pause if you're listening in Overcast. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, Pocket Cast also has a feature. It's in it, but I'm listening really closely, and like you listen to Pocket Cast smart silence feature. And overcasts, I think overcasts is definitely better. I mean, it's even to that point where I can hear the clipping happening just faintly in pocket casts. It's not super noticeable, but when you go back and forth and listen to the same podcast in both, it's really clear that overcast feathers it a little bit, just a little bit, and pocket casts is more aggressive. So if that bothers you, then that's going to be a factor. So I'm going to put uh, so pocket casts came out with a major update, version six. Last July, and I think it's up to 6.4 something now. So they keep pushing updates. Overcast 3 just out with some new features, a much improved interface. In fact, I think everything that I complained about in my Overcast 2 review is now fixed, basically. I call it fixed because I didn't thought they were broken, but let's say the interface changed. Um, and uh, Castro 2.3 is uh, has minor updates, but it's you know kind of on that series. And uh, Castro 2 just came out a few months ago. So I'm going to do a head-to-head-to-head and uh, talk about when you're trying to figure out among them. And each of them now has a different pr- – you know they all have different pricing models. And uh, it's just a whole uh, different world uh, than it was like a year plus ago. Um, all these apps are really great and mature. And uh, I'll just be looking at them in some depth about you know depending on what your need is and preference – um, the tricky part is Overcast is free and you can unlock features with the in-app purchase. The other two are paid, but they're not that expensive. So you might have to pay a few dollars and buy, you know, two apps, which isn't horrible to figure out which one is best for you. But I'm going to try to help people before they make the buying decision as well. I didn't realize Pocket Cast had the silent skipping feature, but I would never use that or the thing that changes the speed because I think those are both gross. I never use, well, <laughs> that is a whole religious that's just like a philo yeah that's a philosophical thing like you wouldn't do that to like a movie or a song no but some people some people any other like media or art form i don't like that's uh, really gross well if you're listening to this podcast you know that i'm already talking at 1.7 times speed so you don't want to slow you want to slow down speeding up ours would be tough because i i can't even talk half the time like you have to let me talk more don't (laughs) speed up this podcast yes it's like the pc in zootopia the, the DMV. Uh, that's a joke for anybody who saw Zootopia, an Academy Award nominated film last year. Um, it won. I'm sorry, Academy Award winning film for 2006. I liked it. People had issues, but it's an interesting split. Uh, so the smart speed, yeah, I like the remove silence because it actually, I don't, uh, it, it, interesting thing, when I was listening to a Castro Lax's feature, so when I switched, suddenly seemed to me that a lot of podcasts got really slow paced. I was like, what's the deal? They're like, oh, I was already having all those pauses removed, and now it sounds faster. So that's a funny thing. But you I can guess turn it would it depend on the podcasts you listen to. But the ones I listen to, like, it, 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 I think that would make them worse. You're listening think, to the space between the words. 
No, it's just that, well, so there's some that are a little more dramatic. Like, there's some that are just, you know, some dudes talking about technology. I don't listen to those anymore. That's, a, um, that's all podcasts. There's, no, there's more. There's more out there. Break free. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the ones that are that are more produced, um, they use silence. Like, it's a tool. They kind of, you know, they go from one segment to another, and they kind of, they, they get dramatic, and there's reading, and there's, like, scripting, and it's, they're, they're taking pauses for effect. I don't know. Like, I just no, wouldn't totally do that. No, you're totally right. You're, you're 100% right. And both, and both Pocket Cast and Overcast let you set global or oh, per good, podcast. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, if yes, you had to good. set it for the whole thing, I think it would be a non-starter. Uh, and you can also set smarts. You can also set uh, speed um, increases and decreases per podcast. So uh, it, no, it's, I think it's, it's a completely valid point. When you're listening to performance, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. We are acting. Uh, you want to make sure. It depends sure. on the podcast. It does depend on the podcast. Okay, so that's good. Um, the other thing that I like about podcasts, uh, Pocket Casts, is the queue. It has an up next queue. Um, I haven't played with the the inbox thing on the other one you were talking about. But so, so I can have like certain podcasts that I love and I never want to miss. Like as soon as a new episode is available, yeah. I can set it to like download that and add it to my queue and then when i'm gonna leave work you know i make sure there's a couple things in the queue i can drag them in and out so but the ones that the ones that i never want to miss it makes sure that i never miss them and the ones that like i just want to listen to that maybe every couple months i'll check in if they have a guest star i'm interested in it won't download those it won't add them to the queue so i like how granular the controls are there that's hopefully that's universal across a lot of these apps but it's that's different a, it, you have to you have to plan each of the apps offers that in a different way and overcast added a queue feature that is different than the playlist feature it used to have so mm-hmm. you used to be able to optimize uh, sort of say uh, all, all the podcasts coming in. I want to download all of them and put uh, and put these on the top in Overcast. Now you can actually queue stuff. Castro is really offers you like a queue top, queue bottom, or just you know show in the inbox feature that you can use the inbox to add things. And mm. Pocketcast has that you know that uh, a slightly different feature. Um, you're discussing the queue next as well. So. Um, yeah, all in different approaches, and some are going to be better suited. I think, like Pocket Cast, to me seems better suited, and Castro for uh, bandwidth, like limited bandwidth situations. And Overcast, it's not that you have to download all the podcasts, but it's not optimized to split between a set of ones you want to download and a set you don't. I need to look at the new controls yeah. more closely, but I think you really anything you subscribe to in Overcast, either everything gets downloaded or it's all streamed when you want it. I don't think you can um, set the same kind of feature there. So I need to dig in and look at the queue feature and see if that changes uh, behavior. But so when I was using, I'm still using Castro. It's kind of my main app. There's some podcasts like hello for the magic tavern and flop house. I just want to show up immediately at the top of my queue when they come in. I want them downloaded whenever that happens. Um, And then a lot of the others, I just, I scan through the episodes and, and add them individually, which Pocket Cast allows in a slightly in a slightly different way. They're different approaches, but um, but more akin, I think, than Overcast. So, can I well, shout out my new podcast obsession? Yeah, yeah. Missing Richard Simmons. Oh, I've heard that is very interesting. It's so good. It's so good. It's Richard so Simmons, good. I mean, I've always right? loved Richard Simmons. I've always had a soft spot for him. Oh. He's amazing. And then, you know, when he kind of disappeared, like I've been, you know, sort of low level concerned, but there haven't been any updates. Like he just vanished, and it's been a couple of years. Well, I cut so, off all contact with everybody yeah. else. And so this guy be... doing the podcast like knows him. 
has been to his house, knows all the like principal players in this crazy effed up mystery, and he's going to get to the bottom of it. And I am here for it. It is so good. Episode three, I think, drops tomorrow. So it's easy to catch up. Like, let's be obsessed together. It's amazing. It's, Being, uh, uh, missing Richard Simmons. This reminds me a little bit about Casey Kasem's last year's, which was really sad, where like family members sort of seized control of him when he was yes. invalid. And then uh, he may have, it, the whole thing was very unpleasant and awful. But because um, yeah. he he's a neat guy, Casey Kasem, very important fellow American popular culture. No, I mean, I've already Richard learned Simmons. so much that I didn't know about him. And yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating and compelling. Honestly, I think Richard Simmons, didn't he get sued because he slapped somebody in an airport? I don't recall that. I think they somebody didn't said something that. to him and then he, he said, made some joke about them and slapped him in the face and he got arrested. But maybe it'll come up in the podcast. Um, yeah, it's a little, you know, I mean, he's a, he, it's funny. It's like he's a public figure. Well, we'll, we'll this, we won't talk about this. You need to, you need to launch your uh, recap, your, your uh, uh, Finding Richard Simmons uh, recap podcast about the show, and then we can talk about it there. Uh, <laughs> Just wanted it, to give it a little shout out. Well, that's good. That's good. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of interesting stuff in the forum being explored now because there's enough listeners to support it. Uh, so, oh, I know what I was going to say. So this last thing about smart, smart silence. So when you're listening to episodes of music or podcasts that do music, you definitely want to turn smart silence uh, or, or whatever the equivalent feature is off. I recorded an episode of uh, Unjustly Maligned with my friend Anthony Johnston uh, and uh, about uh, difficult music, music that's hard to listen to, but it's uh, you know it's like experimental and whatever. And uh, I mentioned Laurie Anderson, and I'm listening to the episode because he dropped in all these um, all these uh, songs we talked about, and her song was Superman. I'm listening to it going, it's going ha 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 ha, and I'm like, that's not how it goes. It goes ha ha ha. I'm like, wait, what? No, wait. And then it's oh. Smart silence. I need to turn that off because all the spaces between the ha's were being removed. Yeah. That's all I'll say. Depends on the podcast. I guess if Depends you were listening to a very low quality podcast that had a lot of pauses that didn't need to be there, then well, it's good news, that we have software to take them out. News or interviews where, you know, the pause is not, you know, it's not a dramatic I know thing. some people just have, are in a big rush. <laughs> some people listen to, I've seen this discussed, some people listen to all their podcasts just about it, like 1.5 or even, I don't know how many people listen to 2.0. Well, which but, one is it? Is it Overcast or Castro that does this? I'm sorry. I always mix them up. Yeah. That takes the pauses out. And then it, it will tell you how much time you save. Oh, yeah. Pocket Cast will do that now too. You can actually watch while you're listening to a podcast. It'll tell you what the effective speed up is. And a lot of the time, like my overall, uh, you know, I've saved like, I don't know, 20 hours in Overcast over however much time. But uh, okay. the, the ultimate thing is some some people are more pausey. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a philosophical, but also some shows benefit. Uh, speaking of things that are hidden that are being found, Apple Park is the official name of the new Apple campus for its it's new uh, uh, Taurus-shaped building. It's neither an will... apple nor a park discussed. That's right. I was thinking they could name it, you know, Park, P-A-R-C, and uh, have like an, a little homage to uh, Xerox Park, but Oh, no. yeah. That <laughs> would no, be a little not weird. Pa- it is not in Palo Alto. It's in Cupertino. Uh, but so, yeah, their their giant, giant facility is about to open, and it's going to be um, – uh, the thing is, I have visited Apple's campus and walked around the public parts with an Apple employee, uh, and um, – uh, you know, the the current uh, – this is one infinite loop I'm thinking of. There's one infinite loop and two infinite loop, and I think there's, uh, you know, other buildings all well, over the place. Yeah there's, yeah, there's tons of other buildings that aren't even on the, the infinite loop. One of the concerns was a building that's a big torus is less likely to provoke the kind of, like, interchange that helps – uh, with collaboration, but Apple is already fairly compartmentalized. So my suspicion is, you know, they're not putting airlocks between each of the segments, but my suspicion is that each of, you know, little segments of the donut will actually have 
those kinds of collaborative space and, you know, where you, because there's a lot of discussion about in workplaces that you want to, you know, you want to have space that's absolutely quiet. Um, and I, I, all these open spaces, I know you work in an open space office and there's a few, I, mean, there's I a do, few but not offices. every day. Like every we day. All, everyone around here takes work from home days, like at least once a week. And That's I'm great. convinced that it's because we need a little bit of quiet sometimes. Yeah, and, and programmers need quiet and it's like, there's oh, a different, absolutely. and also there's a lot of people who work, uh, who are introverts who work in technology. It's kind of a safe place. If you're an introvert, you don't want to have to deal with people with, you know, mm-hmm. wear out your social That's energy. why we have headphones and slack people. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing though, like even headphones. So if you're in a space, like I've read so many times about people who are programmers, uh, or writers, editors, they go into a work environment at a dot com where like they're practically at a, you know, picnic table or something, you know, they're at long tables, maybe they have comfortable chairs, but everyone you're like, it just, we're um, human animal. We see other people and our brains work on faces and movement. We're detecting it all the time. You cannot turn that off. If you get into a flow state of work, sometimes you can block it out, but it is so much harder. So the notion that like everyone should be out and blah, it's like, no, you should have time. Like programmers I know would be delighted even if they had like a four by four office, like with a yeah. door that closed, like yeah. it could be like a tiny little coffin and they'd be like, this is great. I don't have to see anybody. Nobody's looking over my shoulder nobody's like hey Susie I see you're working on some code there it's like no shut up yeah. and let me work yeah so, I think the best offices are flexible like we have we don't have offices but we have like kind of little hidey holes that are no one's office like it'll be just a little empty kind of collab room and that's great. you can have tiny meetings in there but usually what happens more often is that people will just grab one and just like you know hunker down in there for a few hours and get some because yeah like getting in a flow state and then staying in a flow state Like if you get in the flow state, like just not getting like not popping out of it every time like somebody sneezes or starts a conversation or, you know, the PC world starts yelling about something like it's it can be really (laughs) tricky. This is why you should turn off uh, all your social media during the day, like uh, Twitter. And uh, I often do the option click uh, productivity tip, folks. And Mac OS, you probably know this, listeners. But if you option click the notification bar in the upper right, it uh, sleeps notifications. It puts you into a do not disturb mode until Mm -hmm. you option click it again or click and turn it off. And um, that is a really great tool if you're getting if you have things running in the background that are telling you stuff that's non-critical you can yep. take it down a notch do that and uh, i recommend that and hide that, the doc go full screen this is part of my twitter Put on your hygiene. Big headphones <laughs> my, part of my twitter hygiene is i try i try not to run it on my mac during the day i basically keep it quit and occasionally i'll if i have a break or something i might Shut pull it up, up. And, you are on twitter every five seconds no i'm not look at, look at my <laughs> that work is shocking to during me during the work day i'm on very rarely it's like i'm taking a break or i'm eating lunch or something i'll look maybe and catch i don't up. notice because we're on twitter at the same time it's possible but you're not on twitter as much <laughs> we're either in the same so time think, zone so it seems like i'm on it exactly it seems like i'm on it because i'm on it when you're on it but uh Back to Apple Park. So the reason I bring up all this office space stuff is there's been hilarious competing rumors that it's good. Apple is designed it to be all open practically or all closed or whatever. There's like different discussions about what the space is going to be, which is making some Apple employees nervous from what I can tell because some of them want – a quieter, calmer like They don't know yet? Is it a surprise? I don't know. I think they probably, maybe they do, but there are reports coming out that um, it's sort of, I mean, literally, I think I've seen three different stories that don't, that are mutually exclusive as being true about how the office space is constructed. Mm. Um, but the neat part for folks like us who do not work at Apple is that there will be a, <laughs> like a visitor center also. It'll be uh, much bigger and um, 
more interesting than the current situation, which is you can drive up to Apple and go into the Apple store that's at One Infinite Loop. Um, this is going to be, a, a, I don't know if it's going to be a museum or what, but it's going to be a, a, a visitor center. And so you'll be able to drive up and see the building and go in and buy stuff and look at things and like that. So that'll be a little more fun if you uh, get to Cupertino than the, they're not going to, you know, keep you totally away from the tourists. Um, so that is that. So I hope the theater is big. I hope it has plugs at the seats. I hope it has really good Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah, I hope right. there's tons of parking because right now the parking situation there is terrible. There's and I can see them like doing, I mean, you know, hopefully like obviously they've been thinking about this very hard and I hope they haven't done the thing where they make the doors flush with the walls and like the perfect curve windows and then you can't find a freaking parking spot. Like think about what people actually do and what actually matters. You know, lots of bathrooms like the kind of stuff that like people really need all the stories that I'm seeing about like oh and we use like this kind of material and this kind of like whatever like none of that is exciting to me maybe if I worked there it would be a little more compelling but like it's just it's it's an office building like it doesn't have to you know it's not like a, a gadget any of us are gonna buy I don't know I think just, they have a vast underground uh, garage don't they good it needs it and is they it need connected so to public, much parking I mean like I don't know the public transportation no, situation not. No, yeah I mean so you'd almost want you know that's the kind of thing where um, where uh, well we don't need to get into a public transit podcast here but we've talked about that before <laughs> um, so let's let's move on to iPhone 8 rumors There's more, this is kind of a, a big thing that came out this last week Wall Street Journal report that the iPhone 8 coming this fall, ostensibly under that number, will switch to uh, USB-C instead of using Lightning. Yeah, that um, just dropped today. Yeah, and that's interesting. And so we don't know exactly. It's the- a little unclear. The way it was worded, it sounds like it could be they're actually like changing the Lightning port on the iPhone to USB-C. Or it could be um, we're actually just uh, switching the plug that's on the other end of the lightning cable from USB-A to USB-C. Like Which the actual make. line yeah. from from Wall Street Journal was the, US, uh, the iPhone will feature a USB-C port for the power cord and other peripheral devices instead of the company's original lightning connector. So that sounds to me like they're changing the port. But they might not be, but yeah, I it's mean. It's a weird report if they're not changing the port. I mean, I have a Lightning to USB-C cable here. It's just so, you can so buy clunkily one for the, uh, worded. Pro. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense. Like, I think uh, people have done the dimensional measurements, and uh, USB-C is slightly thicker and slightly wider than Lightning because it's a, you know, if you look at it, it's a circle with a slice, like a thing inside it. Lightning is yeah. a hole, and USB is a hole with a divider in the middle that, that you clamp, that the cord snips into, so uh, it would make a lot of sense to go with it. But there, there were specific advantages of Lightning that USB C uh, didn't have. But I wonder if those, I wonder if those are necessary. And uh, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll find out. It makes I sense mean, for Apple. I there's a lot to, more USB C. Um, like headphones and peripherals, I feel like that because just because um, all the Android phones are going to be using are, are using that, they're all going to that um, for yeah, mini slowly USB. Shift, slowly shifting, and then yeah, of cause it's... course that's on the Mac side, and it would be really nice to have you know one port on everything. But they keep shipping new Lightning things. Like just in the last year or two, they've shipped several like brand new lightning devices the beats x the new um beats ear pods that just came out a couple weeks ago those use lightning airpods apple pencil magic mouse trackport pad keyboard those all charge with lightning so i mean they could have a little like adapter that you stick on the end of a lightning cable that now presto it can you know plug into a usb-c port but yeah i you know the timing is weird i could see them 
doing this. It's a very Apple thing to do, and it makes sense in the long term, which is you know how they make these decisions. But the timing is odd to me, just because of all these new Apple devices. They've been like the new Lightning devices. They've been flooding you know the the ecosystem with. I agree with you because you have to be able to charge those. So if they, they and the whole notion is that you already have all these Lightning. Cables and plugs. I have and lightning whatever. cables for days. It would totally make sense for them to do this to me. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it, but the funny part is, moving Apple keeps getting uh, gets criticized for adopting uh, new proprietary standards, and they get criticized for adopting new industry standards. But USB C, at least, is the direction everyone's going, and everything yeah. is ostensibly intercompatible. Although uh, our, our friend Gordon Ung at uh, PC World will tell you why things aren't entirely intercompatible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as compatible as you would think. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty ignorant about this stuff, and I feel like a USB C port is a USB C port, but that's not even true at all. It just it's so power is the bigger thing. But and then there's you know you can buy a cable that doesn't do data, only does power. You yes, can buy a cable that only annoying. does USB 2.0, even though it, it's a USB C cable. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean it will do 3.0 or uh, you know 3.1 Gen 2 speeds. So you got to understand the difference between 3.0 Gen 1 and Gen 2 and all that. So, yeah. Um, and the then cur- the ones on the Mac are really Thunderbolt ports, but they're USB-C. Well, like, right. USB-C form factor, is a connect- like, I mean, this is the funny factor. part. So I'll do my, my tiny speech again, which is USB-C is, is, a, is a physical port over which many different standards can pass. Yes. So USB-3 is simply one of the standards that passes over USB-C port. Thunderbolt 3 works compatibly over USB-C because it's just another data standard that goes over the same connector. So you need a controller on both ends of a Thunderbolt 3 connection, not just a USB-C port, so that the controllers talk to each other over a standard bus. Oh, right, right, right. I know, but it's confusing because you're like, this is what annoyed people is in the past – uh, every connector sort of did the same thing. And now you're saying I can plug something in and uh, I maybe mean, there's a fallback mode. Is it, it, There are certain things that are Thunderbolt 3 only, like 5K monitor, some hard drive uh, RAID systems and so forth. Almost there'll, there'll be a, there's going to be a subset of Thunderbolt 3 only devices that, uh, that when you plug them into a USB-C device that only does USB 3, does not do Thunderbolt 3, will not work. And it's a yeah. small set of things and it'll be fairly obvious, but it still does this get confusing. It's crazy too, because it's like, it's one port and everyone's thinking that this is going to make it more simple. One like one port, one cable, like or we most, can't lose. And it's yeah. just like, no, actually it's gotten a lot more complicated because they all look the same, but they're different. So but have fun more, with that. Know, it's, the thing is, right. You don't need to have five different, it's going to say you don't need to have five different connector types, but you do because of old legacy devices. But at some point, <laughs> it'll shake out in 2017. So by the end of this year, there'll be so much USB-C stuff and all the new devices being made, you'll have an option, you know, peripherals and other things. You'll be buying things that either you're simply using a DisplayPort connector. I mean, DisplayPort is the simplest adapter to is you can literally get, you know, like these things that are tiny little dongles and they either do HDMI or DisplayPort on one side and you plug it into USB-C and they don't cost very much. So it's the pain there is very small. And if you're using a monitor, you're not constantly plugging in and out. You're really plugging the USB-C connection. You're not like swapping cables. And all other peripherals will start coming out in USB-C versions. So as you upgrade your systems, you'll either buy USB-C or Thunderbolt 3 uh, peripherals. And people who are creative professionals, especially video editing, will go for Thunderbolt 3, you know, 40 gigabit per second uh, hard drive arrays and it'll it'll all catch up but um, sure but then going back to the iphone for a second i think if they did this now it would be it would be jarring but it would i think it would be less of um 
uh, issue, like less of a uh, drama to, to change than it was when we went from the 30 pin connector to lightning in the first place, just because of how far like all the wireless stuff has come. I mean, like even CarPlay is wireless now. And um, yeah, like all the speakers and stuff are wireless. The headphones are going wireless. All their docks. So if you've bought any kind of dock, you're once again in like, and you won't be able to it's plug. It's just been so long since I've needed to buy a dock. Like, well, I mean, true. I just don't feel like that's, I, I don't think that's as popular so a cable as it was. Update. I mean, if Apple is yeah. smart, what they'll do, like they, they did with, um, you know, they ultimately did with the MacBook Pro and slashed prices for a while. And in fact, I think those price... Uh, I think that's still the end of March now. Still, the price decreases are there for the USB-C uh, uh, and um, Thunderbolt three adapters. But uh, you know, they included the uh, the analog to uh, uh, Lightning adapter with the iPhone seven and seven plus, which was mm-hmm. you know to reduce the pain there. And then basically, I didn't hear anybody complain about it mostly <laughs> since then. And you know, all the flagship phones are getting rid of audio jacks too from other makers. As we've just seen, um, but if Apple is if Apple is kind, what they're going to do is they're going to include, you know, at least a USB-C to lightning, uh, I mean, USB-C to, uh, other kind of adapter, like type a or whatever it will be, will get included in the box because if they include a USB-C to USB-C cable with a charger, that's not so good. Um, and you can pass, I think I'm trying to remember the power limit, but like for an iPad pro, this has been the thing from the beginning that mm-hmm. it can charge faster, uh, over its port than the uh, Type A style yeah. connector would allow. So if you get the Lightning to USB C cable, right. it'll charge faster from a USB C like power brick. Twenty nine watts instead of uh, whatever the maximum was twelve something watts or fifteen watts with the other. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, there's some details to work out. Um, other part of this rumor is the curved screen rumor, which we're dubious about. That's come back again that that maybe it's going to have a curved OLED screen instead of a flat a flat one. I, I just don't. I don't want a curved screen, but there you go. May just be, just be, just be. Yeah, I don't know if I really I care that much if the screen is curved. It'll it'll fit on my buttock more. I'm sure they'll have some like silly explanation why this is like amazing and revolutionary and they invented it. But I just like I'd, it's hard for me to get excited about that until they distort my reality. A bunch of security stories I was going to whip through pretty quickly because some of them are obscure. Some affect Mac users. Um, there's one I wish I could write about somewhere, but it's so obscure. I've written about this before. <laughs> it's um, SHA-1 is broken. And um, you can read about this. Uh, our colleagues at PC World or IDG News Service have written about it too. And the, the, the good news is I've written about this a bit in the private eye column because of the warnings you would get in browsers and where Apple was in terms of updating Safari. And the basic idea is that SHA-1 is a way, it's a, a called a hashing algorithm. And it's one of a, there's a lot of different hashing algorithms. And the notion is that um, how do you determine whether somebody you don't know is who they claim to be who they are? And the entire, like the system of the web is made up with these interlocking parts. So browser makers and operating system makers store signatures from certificate authorities. The certificate authorities issue these secure documents to web servers like, uh, you know, a bank or Amazon or whomever wants one, these SSL TLS certificates. And uh, the, the, hashing, the hashing algorithms let you determine that things were not tampered with. So I am on my browser. I connect to a web server. I'm delivered a certificate. I can validate the certificate to make sure the text part that's human-readable and machine-readable that has all the security bits I can use to create a secure connection with the web server, I can validate that with the certificate authority information. And the signature lets me confirm that nothing changed because the signature is 
the the way the hashing algorithm works is if you take a piece of text of any kind, whether it's in, encrypted or binary or just plain old text, email, whatever you do, you feed it into the hashing algorithm and it produces a small, a short number. If you change anything, even the slightest in that input document, the hash that comes out is totally different. There's no way to predict it. It's non-deterministic. So the idea is that someone can't tamper with a piece of information. I can't take a a digital certificate and uh, put my web server's address in instead of yours and then create the identical hash. The hash is so different that you can detect tampering. So it's kind of like an anti-tampering seal. The the deal is SHA-1 was implemented a number of years ago to protect a a weak – to replace a weak algorithm called MD5. And then it was realized very quickly that SHA-1 had uh, potential vulnerabilities that, when exploited, would make it uh, much faster than brute force to crack. So there was an idea that you know if you did a brute force cracking, it'll take X million years, but we might be able to speed this up by factors of hundreds of thousands or millions. And so, anyway, after many years, it was finally proven uh, Google was involved in this and us independent researchers and using a vast amount but not unaffordable – uh, amount of computation power, they're able to show they could take two different PDFs and uh, that were not the same and produce an identical SHA-1 hash. Um, so the reason this is important to any human being is that uh, fortunately, the certificate authorities and other parties, mostly the browser makers, uh, pushed forward uh, to replace SHA-1, which was being used for web protection with later algorithms, uh, mostly SHA-256, which is part of the SHA-2 family. Of hashing things, so uh, that's why at the end of twenty uh, end of twenty fifteen, a lot of browsers would start warning you if you went to a um, or they'd give you some kind of error or warning if you went to a site that was using an outdated certificate. In twenty sixteen, uh, the certificate authorities were supposed to stop issuing these outdated certificates, and if you and there were actually some disputes, and somebody a couple of organizations got booted um, from these uh, these. Uh, root trust stores where um, browser makers and operating systems included them. Some got booted out. Like Mozilla um, booted some people from Firefox and I think uh, some issues about whether Apple and Microsoft have done the same because they were still issuing or hiding the fact that they were issuing these outdated certificates that are ostensibly vulnerable. So uh, the transition actually essentially happened and the web is uh, remains um, as secure as it was for the most part. So that's that's that story. So now you know. Now you understand. Yes, thank you. You wonder what that was about. <laughs> it's really about anti I mean, the whole thing is it's a lot of math, but it's mostly about anti-tampering. And there's just ways if you can't – you need to be able to have a way to send information and know if it's tampered with. And that's a yeah. really tricky thing. So fortunately, people were – you know, it took years of – I mean, there was a lot of infighting and a hilarious amount of – of effort where they're like, look, this is going to break. And when it breaks, then, you know, it only becomes cheaper after it's proven to be broken than everyone knows. And so someone willing to spend, I don't know, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars today can do it. Uh, but that means in a year, it'll be like $20,000 and in two years, it'll be like five bucks. Right. So you can't <laughs> to create one of these, uh, you know, tampered documents. So, um, we're ahead of it. Um, but more relevant is another security story, uh, which was, uh, folks, if you heard about this, it was the cloud fl- Cloudflare story that some people are calling Cloudbleed. <laughs> Did you follow this, Susie? It's really weird. Not really. I heard well, about it. The, the, the brief thing here is that Cloudflare is actually a really interesting uh, company, and it's, there's a number of firms like this, but they're, they're one that offers – um, they offer free service as well as paid tiers, and they're they're a mitigation service. So it's um, increasingly likely that your company or site 
could be arbitrarily targeted for a denial of service attack. And um, there are now distributed denial of service attacks or DDoSs that can like swamp parts of the internet in their scale, um, often by leveraging internet of things devices that have very poor security. So there are botnets that comprise hundreds of thousands or millions of DVRs and cameras and routers and other things that then are um, suborned and directed to run like attacks that can be in hundreds of gigabits per second or even terabits per second against a particular site or company or whatever. So Cloudflare is a mitigation firm. They buy, they have uh, terabits per second of access worldwide. And essentially, if you're attacked, they can dis- they can sort of disperse the attacks. Your site remains reachable. And um, Google has a uh, – there are different companies that offer this. Google has a program that's for um, nonprofits and like journalism sites that are have a social purpose that get attacked by governments and, um, and other enemies. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing that they do. So Cloudflare, uh, they had a uh, – because of some software issues – uh, one of every 3.3 million pages they served use from because um, they're sort of like a proxy. They sit in front of your website and um, distribute the uh, um, they uh, wherever you are in the world, you get a page that's closest to you from this proxy, you know, caching server. So one out of every one 3.3 million pages served between uh, February 12th and 16th, I think, were the dates. Contained some random garbage that turned out to be just stuff that was in the memory of the server. So it was anything that had passed between a web browser and a server sent in the clear, which could include uh, passwords and other kinds of stuff that should have been um, – would normally be encrypted. And some of that data was then in turn cached at search engines that spider various websites and cache the results for searching purposes. You can pull up a cache page from Google or Bing or whatever. So um, the upshot is the number of pages may have been very small um, that people actually had access to, but because the information disclosed was so critical, like passwords, uh, when you're entering your password on a website, if it had passed through this caching process, it's possible it could have been exposed, um, that people are still trying to sort out like which companies were totally affected, which passwords you should change, uh, just because even though the amount of information leaked was probably very small, it's impossible to know exactly what it was. Wow. Yeah, so um, – and one password got mentioned specifically by the uh, Google Project Zero researcher who discovered this. Uh, called out – he said, you know, among the things they'd found were uh, passwords from OkCupid and uh, a couple other places, and he mentioned one password. So the folks at AgileBits examined this and put out a statement, and I wrote a piece about it because um, AgileBits has uh, at least three levels of protection. Um, they use uh, – they, they protect connections with – uh, with a web security. So if you connect to their onepassword.com service, this is not what's used by just uh, if you're using um, one password Dropbox or other things. This is their their centralized shared um, team and family password sharing system. Uh, they uh, do a secure connection, but then they also inside of that, they do their own security. And then inside of that, the information remains encrypted until it arrives at your browser. So I wrote a piece uh, explaining what they're doing. So uh, any one password information that was revealed through this Cloudflare exploit should not, in fact, um, be useful to any third party at all because it's wrapped into additional levels. That's really good to know. Yeah. It's smart. They designed, I mean, they said we designed our system assuming that, you know, a secure web connection was um, not reliable. Yeah. And I was like, you can't count on that. I was like, good for you. Uh, (laughs) In this crazy world. (laughs) Exactly. A couple more security stories, Susie. We'll get through. I know. Uh, But this, these are more relevant. I swear. Um, the, one of them's uh, funny. What's that? Last one, one of them's oh, yeah. actually well, funny. The other one is, uh, so Apple uh, once again had an issue with uh, developer certificates, this time a little more obscure. It had to do with um, 
companies that are selling apps or offering apps that are not in the App Store but use iCloud. There was a certificate related to this external iCloud uh, permission that expired. Um, and so developers with older apps, even though Apple says you don't need to update as a developer, you don't need to update the certificate, it should remain valid. Uh, these apps stopped working um, because of this provisioning. So a lot of companies, I had multiple apps, uh, Solver, uh, 1Password, I think those were the only ones that actually had a reboot to do it. You had to download new versions, sometimes manually, and then sometimes reboot to get the new certificate to uh, to work correctly. And um, we can put a link in the show notes to uh, Rob Griffiths, formerly of Macworld, now at Manytricks, the web development company, um, he wrote a very detailed explanation. If you're curious as to why it happened, and Apple, in the wake of this, said new developer certificates are going to be issued for 18 years <laughs> to prevent this being a problem. So yes, that was that good. is good. It solves it. Um, so final security story: Teddy bear voicemail leakage. Teddy bear voicemail leakage. Yeah. So there's a teddy bear. The future, he's leaking my voicemail. He's leaking your voicemail. Well, this is the Internet of Things or the Internet of Bleep as uh, it's S H uh, asterisk T. I think you can say that. We're can all I? adults here. Internet yeah. of shit. Uh, it's a great. <laughs> you should follow that account on Twitter, which uh, just uh, you know finds these examples of which there are many every day of why Internet of Things is a terrible, terrible idea. We should none of us use it. It's not entirely true. I'm being more cynical, but uh, there's no because there's no uh, regulation or even industry process with a label of safety and security on it for anything. It means that. Um, you can sell anything as a company that works on the internet without having to conform to any security practices at all. So in this case, there's a teddy bear that, um, <laughs> this uh, is really bad. It's, it's terrible. Uh, it's like, it's, it's a such teddy a bear called thing. cloud pets and it's supposed to let kids and parents exchange messages when they're not like in the same place. So like yeah. you leave a message like with an app and then, it the shows up on your kid's back. teddy bear, right. so when you're on a business trip, your kid knows that you miss him. And that sounds very sweet, except all of that data, including customer credentials and two million message recordings, was just left in a database online that wasn't behind any kind of firewall or Did didn't not, even not have password a password on yes. it. So that's that's pretty pretty bad. Yeah, so millions, uh, hundreds of thousands of accounts, um, 2.1 or 2.2 million voice messages, and um, security researchers discovered this. It uses, um, they use this database format called Mongo, which for some reason does not uh, require security by default. So, (laughs) because it's assumed to be used on a local network segment where you're using other security, which is a bad idea. This is like the one password thing. You want to make sure you assume, like I've been securing uh, MySQL databases for many years and you do multiple things. You have passwords, you limit, use firewalls to limit access to either the same machine or a local network segment. You use um, uh, security to make sure you're only using encrypted connections or direct socket connections. There's all these things that are basic and apparently Mongo doesn't do those things because it's Mongo. Mongo. It would be trying to lock your house up with like tape yeah yeah i'll just, Instead I'll just, of, leave just the, no locks just so you know a couple pieces of scotch tape that'll hold it's not even that it's like there's not even a, a, a not even a thing a doorknob you turn it's just a door <laughs> it's just some not even cardboard like there's resting no, against a hole yeah, in your you're house like, this will be, be fine nobody <laughs> will find this because my address isn't listed even though i'm on this busy street uh so <laughs> the cloud pets uh, fell afoul of this uh this issue that um uh 
there's a database called Shodan that is basically a search engine for unprotected websites and servers, <laughs> and security researchers use it. I mean, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's both a good and bad thing, but it's a way to find, and people use this to research uh, and report, you know, to companies what's what's wrong. Um, so, yeah, if, I don't know how many people had these, you know, clearly they had 800,000 accounts, so plenty of people did. Um, this comes on the heels of another product in Germany that wasn't insecure, but uh, because of how it, it was a child, it was, again, a, like a doll that communicated with the internet, and the German authorities have essentially banned it because uh, as a, a dangerous device, because it's um, it did not use security in transferring this information back and forth. So that was just Her last name's week. Kayla, and she's up to no good. Yeah, and she is now is she legal in Germany? I believe, right? Uh, she, yes. She has been she has been banned because uh, it's they got um, a warn. Parents got a warning that uh, hackers could use the doll to steal personal data because it's got uh, microphones and cameras, and then an insecure Bluetooth connection. That's right. It's labeled an espionage device. That's what mm-hmm. I want to say. Yes, yeah. the Bundesnetzagentur. It's, it's like one of those Verboten. nanny cams, only it's a doll and it's very hackable. Yes, Kayla is verboten in Deutschland, says the German federal. I don't know if they actually agency. banned it. I can't tell from this. Well, no, it's it's. It a, I think it's like actually. I'm looking at NPR story here, and uh, it's a stealthy espionage device. Is what it's saying, and uh, the the uh, federal network agency banned the doll. So I don't oh, know. Okay. Yeah. Um, it cannot be sold in uh, in Germany. Um, so oh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, pulling the doll off shelves. Here it is. You're right. Here, I'll drop. We'll put this in the show notes, folks. But, Crazy. Um, so all these things, in your, you know, this is, again, Internet of Things. Uh, yeah. I, I still, I've been, you know, writing and talking about this for a while. And what I'm amazed by is there doesn't appear to be an, um, and I find this bizarre, there doesn't appear to be enough of a, a will among companies that are competitors to form a seal of approval group because I think all of them are competing so fiercely they don't want to give an advantage by saying, well, these three different ecosystems all have a seal of approval Mm -hmm. Um, or the cost of conforming to that. Like once – so we've talked about this before. In the United States, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, has no enforcement power over like just normal operations. So I could say – um, depending on the state and the law. But I could say um, uh, we collect information about you and we sell it to other people. And depending on certain factors, the FTC can't come after me if I've disclosed it. And it's like I say, there's a lot of provisos because there's some things that are illegal regardless of whether you disclose or not. But in many cases, like the Vizio situation um, a few weeks ago where it turned out the TV sets were collecting all this information and so yep. forth, they're in trouble uh, because – the, they promised one thing and the FTC alleges they delivered another, right? So the FTC can uh, sort out fraudulent, uh, misleading, and, um, and other sorts of uh, issues. So that's that's the big problem. So the thing is, like, the Internet of Things, companies, as long as they don't promise security – I mean, D-Link fell afoul of this too. There's an action uh, going on with uh, the FTC there as well. We talked about a few weeks ago is – if you promise one thing and deliver another, but you can simply say uh, this may or may not happen or um, we, we don't protect your information this way and there's no standard. So once you start a trade group and you say um, we're part of the uh, – this has the Internet of Things, you know, the IoT seal of approval from the IoT group uh, and you look up the IoT group's listings that says they've tested these 500 things. If the device doesn't do those, then you're open to litigation and government regulation or government response. So I think companies are afraid to put themselves into a regime where even though it's voluntary, they could wind up in, uh, you know, with consumer litigation issues. Yeah. 
But it's bad because you want to know. I mean, like there should be things like somebody should be auditing all these things and publishing reports of audits. Absolutely. Especially things that are marketed to children. Good gravy. Oh, speaking of Internet of Things problems, though, one more. This isn't a security story, but hey, uh, folks, if you had a Google cloud-based, you know, Wi-Fi router, had some problems with it maybe, huh? Huh? I was thinking about it. I don't have one yet, but well, it's on my list. You know, just like Nest had its problems, uh, some of the Google routers, um, some percentage fell off the network and people had to, um, I believe, they lost their settings and had to reconfigure them, is my understanding. So you couldn't just uh, like reboot it. And this was a cloud-based problem and Google, you know, I think confirmed everything happened, but it was just, um, it's kind of a pain when the thing you're requiring or you're relying on for... Uh, connectivity can't connect, then what do you do? Right? So, um, yeah, so th- this is, uh, uh, Ian Paul reported on this for uh, TechHive or for the IDG, uh, is you weren't just signed out of your device. The routers were reset to factory defaults. So they had to be um, had to be reset again. And it took a bit for them to come up. So That's a uh, drag. Yep. That kind of, uh, this is why I'm not excited about, I mean, gosh, I'm such a luddy about this. I'm not excited about cloud-connected IoT devices. Me neither. <laughs> Me neither. That's a nice thing about HomeKit is that the devices are all talking to each other, but they're not really relying on the cloud. Like, if you want to go outside your network and access them, like, you know, you're using some some kind of relay for that. But it's that, that's kind of what I like about them. Oh, I'm trying to think. Is HomeKit, HomeKit, you could have cloud-connected devices that are HomeKit certified, but as I think about it, most all the HomeKit devices I can think of are really – local devices that talk yeah. to a local network thing and they don't yeah. need the cloud to function. Although they could be getting uh, firmware updates over the cloud and whatever, yeah, but yeah, they're not yeah. cloud. But it's like if the cloud goes down or if there's, you know, there's some trouble in the cloud, like you'll still be able to turn on your light. Trouble in the cloud. <laughs> we've, got, we've got trouble in the cloud. There's trouble Quick. in the cloud. I mean, I don't know. That's just what they talk about. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't had any any issues with any of my little devices. I've got I just set up a couple of those Eve um HomeKit things that are like weather weather sensors. So I got one inside and one outside checking on my my temperature and my humidity and my air quality and and then if I had other things like a thermostat or Tim Cook's fancy HomeKit fireplace, I could have those um you know connected where if uh, inside the temperature drop, then you know the heat could be turned up. But I don't quite have that. I'm just kind of getting data. <laughs> What's the uh, in movie where someone uh, is thinking about like I can tell whether it's raining? You know, I'm a, I can tell whether it's raining and just go outside and it's it's uh, get wet, something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, know how when you check the temperature, especially out here on the West Coast, yeah. we have all these little microclimates. You check the temperature and it's like, yeah, it's 63, and you're like, where? It's not 63 at my house. But now I know exactly what temperature it is outside. Yesterday my house. in Seattle, we had snow, rain, hail, and thunder snow. I love thunder snow. <laughs> my favorite kind of storm. Snow. Thunder snow forever. Somebody asked me. I posted something about thunder snow, and they said, "Is this a new word? Does this just get coined?" And I looked it up, and apparently. It's it dates mostly to 2006 when all of a sudden there started to be more incidents of thunder snow, yes. and so I was going to guess in the last 10 years or so. So I think the term predates it a bit, but I don't think it was widely used. And then suddenly people just saw thunder, you know, thunder snow. Thunder snow was go. So it's a thing. So, thunder snow is go. Um, speaking of uh, storms and what they might do to your home. This is my segue. Uh, I recently uh, published uh, at uh, TechHive and also at Macworld a roundup of um, surge protectors. And Susie, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think it bears repeating. Do you know if your surge protector is still working? Do you know? Uh, 
I mean, the things that I plug into it still get power, so I assume that uh-huh. it's still working. Aha! Uh-huh. So here's something I learned about a year ago, <laughs> which I never knew. Folks, I've been doing computational stuff for a long time. I bought a lot of surge protectors over the years. Um, surge protectors wear out, right? And there's a light on a lot of them that says protected, and it's a green light. And if that green light isn't lit, so go look under your desk right now. See if that green light is lit on the protected. If it's not, it is not being protected against surges. So there's there's two kinds of surge protectors you can get. Well, sort of two. One, if the protection wears out, it stops providing power. It just shuts the power off because you're no longer protected against surges. So the assumption is you just don't want power to flow because it could mm-hmm. damage something. The other kind, the light goes out, but power continues to flow, but there is absolutely no protection. So about a year ago, I was working on some uh, some uh, research about this, and I discovered this fact, and I look under my desk, and sure enough, there's a surge protector with the light pretty much out. I'm like, oh, that needs to be replaced. So um, the issue is that surge protectors, um, the, the kind of affordable ones, use uh, metal oxide varistors, and it's kind of like you're burning through them slowly, so they're like these heavy-duty parts that block surges and they only allow mm-hmm. a little power to go through. So if you're in an area that gets regular surges and uh, lightning, and all, well, not lightning, but like all kinds of stuff happening to the power system, you're, these MOVs get burned out more quickly. If you're in an area that's power is mostly normal, it might be – I've got another – I have a couple of these and I have a surge protector that's been in use for a decade and that one, the light is still glowing bright green which means that protection is still active. So um, I wrote well, up. I'll have to check. That's check. So look for that green light. If it's not lit, you're not protected. So some people, so in the old days when everything was a hard drive, people were reluctant to buy a surge protector that would just abruptly cut the power because it would probably crash your drive, right? Right. Um, While it was writing and saving something and then right. it'd be all corrupted. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly that. So now we have SSDs and a lot of people have devices that have, you know, are, are cloud-based or whatever. So it makes more sense to get something if you're concerned about a surge destroying your equipment, which is why you have a surge protector, um, that it would cut power. What I feel like is there's this huge missing market for an Internet of Things kind of thing, which would be a surge protector that would warn me as it gets to that point. It would be more expensive, but it would signal me and say, "You." I mean, because the problem is these MOVs are – they're like this weird crystal structure, so they're, it's uh, you can't predict how long they'll last. But when the power starts, when the protection stops, the, the, there's a signal that allows them, just an electrical signal that allows the device to show that protected light or not. So mm-hmm. that part's known. So you could have something that would like just send up a signal through some kind of messaging system and alert you and say, hey, your surge protector is not protecting. Do You should get a new one right now. Um, yeah, that would be nice. It's an issue. So there's so anyway, you can read about um, – I like the Belkin has there's, – there's two that we recommend. The Belkin is the one uh, that I kind of like best and um, I'm forgetting the number two. But go go read the reviews because there's three we recommend for different out of six tested. Um, one is a power cutoff. Another is a power no cutoff. So depending on what your concern is, you can, uh, you can pick among those. Um, but funny thing, like now I know. Now I look at those green lights and go, ah – um, the thing I like about my power strip is that it has little um, like holes on the back that you can use to mount it on something yes. with, with screws. So I have it mounted flat to a nightstand, and I didn't put screws into the nightstand. What I used instead were two command hooks, the little metal ones that kind of flip up and down. Oh, so I yeah. line those up where the holes are in the power strip and then put those in there and then use the holes on the back of the power strip to kind of like 
click into those command hooks. And now my power strip never budges from my nightstand. It never like falls over, like falls off or, you know, twists weird because the cord is like twisted. It always stays nice and flat. And I have all my chargers plugged into there and it's, it's my little charging station. That's a good life hack. Are the command hooks, are they adhesive backed or something? Yeah, so they're adhesive back. So if I ever want to get them off that nightstand, you just you like you pull them off, and they don't leave any damage. So, I mean, command hooks are super handy for a lot of stuff, and That's pretty they, slick. they work really good to mount a power. St- like if you're even if you're mounting it like not on a wall, if you just want it on your desk or something that, where it's flat and it stays in one place. Oh, I should also point out um, of the re- units I reviewed, there's a lot of them have like a telephone line for DSL and uh, cable. Uh, coaxial pass through, and oh, yeah. the the basic word is that it's totally useless. Uh, the way those I never things are got pro- into those. Okay. Well, those things are protected in a slightly different way. So they'll they protect power in one way, and they protect um, they block surges on those kinds of pass through lines that are different. And the protection is essentially either unnecessary or ineffective. So I would never. Ma- I, I don't run anything through those, and yeah, me neither. I wouldn't make a decision based on them. Essentially, you can you can ignore them, and it's you know it's a problem because you could get a surge, but and it could damage some equipment. But typically, only the stuff directly connected, and and um, depending How on your. How common are surges? Surges are very common, really, but very small. So the thing is, um, the electrical power system is in most places is pretty good. It's pretty clean. It used to be much worse because uh, in the days before electronics, uh, big motors take a long time to change uh, phase. So like a motor on a compressor and a refrigerator or an uh, you know anything that's deriving electrical power, either it's something like a toaster oven, which is essentially a big short circuit, or it's an uh, you know or a, a convection uh, uh, sorry conventional oven um, or a big motor on a thing like a dishwasher or whatever, those things don't, um, they don't get abused by surges. So there could be surges all the time. And uh, as long as it wasn't too high, it didn't matter because those devices just shrugged them off. This, like they, it's like almost as if they're averaged out. When you start putting electronics, electronics are so much more sensitive and they could be uh, burned out so easily that over time, and we're now, you know, decades into uh, a home electronics uh, world that, um, you know, a world in which everyone has tons of those devices, electrical utilities have cleaned stuff up and reduced them, but they are still very common. The, like the, the surge protectors, the ones I tested mostly have a 330 volt or 400 volt cutoff, which sounds ridiculously high when you're thinking about electrical voltage being 110 or 120 volts in America, but devices are made to withstand fairly high variations in voltage that are very brief. Um, but you can have, you know, you can have a 700 volt wacko come through there for a moment. And if it lasts for a while or it's much higher, it can burn through these MOVs, which sacrifice themselves uh, instead of your equipment. It's a big, it's a big issue. It's very interesting. And then there's all these issues I won't get into about what the difference is between line and neutral and ground, which affects these as well. I write about that a bit in the article. Um, it's a very are, interesting article. Everyone can learn something about surge protectors. Surges are very common, but they're often very low. And so that's why you, in some parts of the country, you could burn through a surge protector in months or a year without ever realizing there are any surges. In other parts or different parts of town, depending on your local electrical substation, you might, you know, be 10 years, the thing might be still totally providing protection. I bet all of my power strips are at least ten probably years old. I'm the, gonna um, go look. Oh, I never. Cha- I know I never changed them. Like I say, I'm looking yeah, at lights. Yeah, who and buys like, new power strips? I'm looking at my lights. I just went looking at my desk. Look at my lights. Um, yeah, it's a thing. So you think you're protecting yourself? There, you can spend about ten times as much. So the the ones I recommend are. 
thirty bucks each. I think around the top uh, recommendations, you can spend almost ten times as much and get a different kind of surge protector that's often used for like audio equipment in studios and things like that. That essentially never burns out. Like it's uh, the system is designed as a sort of complete unit circuit to dissipate the power, uh, the surge. And uh, so some people, you know, if you're doing certain kinds of recording, anything where um, or more expensive gear, you have a $10,000 piece of equipment, um, you know, and it's also, even if a surge gets through your surge protector, it doesn't mean it's going to destroy your hardware. It's just much more likely to cause harm. Uh, so you can spend a lot more money and get something that's really industrial and solid and will never fail. And it's even more precise, but for 30 bucks, you do pretty well. Uh, one last thing, because we're running over here. Um, Gboard uh, G-B-O-A-R-D is Google's um, alternative keyboard thing. You don't use Gboard, right? You use, nope. Do you use Swipe? Do you use Apple's keyboard? Yeah, I use Apple's keyboard. Yeah. Use Apple's keyboard. Um, I uh, tried a few of them after uh, Apple started supporting iOS alternative keyboards and wasn't totally happy with any of them, but I kind of gotten used to, I forget which one I used, not Swipe, but one of those. And um, then Google came out with Gboard and I switched to it and I have never looked back. And uh, it's free. And you have to, you know, you're sort of agreeing uh, to pass information to Google, which they promise to not, you know, retain for privacy reasons and so forth, if you want to get full utility. But it incorporates um, not just like a slide your finger to type thing, which I like and which learns, but you can also do Google searches within the Gboard. And the latest version just came out and they fixed a couple irritating things where sometimes you do corrections and it would certain extra space and there's some other stuff. Uh, so you can hold down the space bar, it launches Google's voice dictation, and then uh, you can dictate something and it drops you back into the app you were in and plops in the Google dictation, which was a missing feature. Apple can do that with its built-in iOS keyboard. That's an automatic yeah. feature. There's the microphone thing. Uh, this is the first time a third party, I think, has figured out how to do this workaround. It's Google, so the dictation's uh, quite good. But then Google knows everything you said. Right, as opposed to Apple, which knows everything you said. No, I mean it's you know we're always dealing about the whether how much pri- how much we trust the privacy policies and techniques that companies use to anonymize or discard our data. So it's always important to read privacy policies. Yeah, to figure that out. But I'm a Gboard fanatic. I tried a friend of mine who was in town, and I mentioned this to her. She's watching me type. She's like, "Oh, she installs it." And I was trying to teach her how to do it. She's like, "Bah!" It's just it's like it's um you can find a keyboard that matches your brain, and Gboard is my brain on keyboards. <laughs> This is your brain on keyboards. Any questions? Great. Uh, I think we finished up our week. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm on cold medication. Can you tell folks? Maybe not. Yeah, I can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Susie, thank you for bearing with me for another week. Yeah, uh, rest up. Feel thank better. You. I will. We'll be back next week, folks. You know, this has been episode 548 of the Macworld Podcast, March 1st, 2017. I have been the slightly sick Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. <laughs> I remain slightly sick. I'm the fully sick Suzio. <laughs> right, you are sick. You are sick and fat. That's P-H-A-T. Sick, bro. Thank you. Sick. Thank you. Sick. You are wicked. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, folks, you can always find us at Macworld.com. Look for the show notes for this episode there so you can find the links we talked about you can email us podcast at macworld.com find us on facebook facebook.com slash macworld find us on twitter at macworld strange pattern there it's all macworld Susie is s-f-s-o-o-z like zed on twitter i'm glenn f g-l-e-n-n-f and we do get your email we get your questions and uh we uh, try to respond to them if we've forgotten anything that you were talking about you asked us poke us and we'll we'll add it to our notes for next week and we'll be back next week <laughs>